0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. I need your help. I need your help. I need to understand something. I need to understand partisan politics. Blind faith in one particular party. Thinking this is the only way and any other way is complete lunacy. The ability to look and give unwavering faith to one particular collection of people, not even knowing what the future of those people will hold. I have never been able to understand it. I've never really subscribed to it. I don't know. Again, I go back to more of a sports background where everybody gets together and you let them do what they do and you pick the best ones And the other ones, unfortunately, get cut. And it doesn't matter whether they come from a conservative background, a liberal background, a socialist background, a Bloc Québécois background. It doesn't matter. It just matters who the best ones are. And the idea that we have so much partisan politics, it's pathetic. It's why our democratic system can be called broken. We're still lucky to have a democratic system. We have a free vote coming up on a national level. That's fantastic. That's great. But we all know that when that vote is held, we are still going to see partisan politics rule in the House of Commons. It always does. And it's a cheap excuse for the way the government should run. Even if you believe wholeheartedly in well we we have to have factions we that's the way that one is forced to do better than the other we can't just have people milling about willy-nilly that's never going to work and yeah i get that part of it but at the same time how do you subscribe to one party all the time how do you say you are a liberal and only a liberal how do you say you are a conservative and only a conservative how do you say you're an ndp supporter and only an ndp supporter How do you say that you are a Rhinoceros Party supporter and only a Rhinoceros Party supporter when you don't know what is coming down the turn? I don't get it. I suppose it's a lot like people who cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs. They're going to cheer no matter what. The Leafs, before the last few years, made a lot of bad decisions, but their fans stood by them. I suppose it's like that, but this is a little different. This isn't a TV show that you watch, which is basically what sports is. This is not, oh, let's see if the Leafs win the Stanley Cup, but if they don't, I might feel sad, but my life will go on. This is dealing with what's best for our country moving forward. And yet, we have staunch support for partisan politics. So I need your help today. I need you to explain this to me, because there's a great example, and we're going to illustrate all of this through that example To kick off the show, Kelly Elliott, who's the deputy mayor of Middlesex Center and was also on the roundtable today on the Craig Needle show, was tweeting last night about something that she had kind of become involved in, whether she wanted to or not. And Kelly Elliott comes from a conservative background. And maybe it's best to let her tell the story. I was able to sit down with Kelly a couple of hours ago after she finished on the roundtable on the Craig Needle Show. And we talked about her posts on Twitter last night. And in them, Kelly told a very interesting story.
1: Sure. So I uh, was chatting with a friend yesterday who's been campaigning door-to-door for one of our local candidates in Elgin, Middlesex, London. And uh, he heard some statements uh, and I'm not really sure how I've become so popular that people just bring me up in conversations. Anyone who has I met you <laughs> would
0: would disagree with that. It's very easy to see. Um,
1: but apparently um, my lack of being a good conservative or, or whatever that means, I'm not quite sure yet, uh, but that has become a, a doorstop conversation uh, for some canvassers. Again, I'm not really sure why I'm this popular, but uh It really brings, so how it all came to light was I was very public last week in a campaign donation I made to Kate Graham, who is running for uh, the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Kate and I are friends, and I am a person who just thinks it's great when people get involved. I love the fact that I'm deputy mayor, that I can help my community, that I'm able to do all these things, and so when people want to do that. And on a much higher level than I do, obviously being a uh, leader of a party, uh, I really want to support that. And, and Kate's a great person and she has great ideas. Um, so I made, and I'll be perfectly on, honest, a very measly $75 donation uh, to her campaign. Um, but apparently that makes me a, a bad conservative. And and it really frustrates me because I think there's so many great candidates out there and and I don't like to look to party colors. And that's something that I I was raised that, you know, friendships aren't bound by who you vote for. And and my grandpa, um, and I'll bring him into the story, ha- had taught me. And so I want to just support good people. And I think our world, our country, our municipalities, our communities just need better people at the helm of leadership. And, and I really want to support that. Uh, so one of the conversations um, that were had were how um, – disappointed my grandpa would be in me. And so, um just to kind of give you your listeners um the backstory of that, my grandfather uh who passed away in 2017. So he's not even alive. Um but he was a conservative MP in the 70s. And uh and a lot of people say that I follow in his footsteps and uh, and I'm the only one in my family to take on this political world like he did. And so It hurt like it. It was really upsetting that someone had to bring that into it. And and what's not even funny is the fact that I went through this just a year ago in the provincial election and I went through the same thing of people saying those same things. And so it really brought in a conversation on Twitter, my thread about uh, partisanship and how we. Um, become so engulfed in our parties, and how you can't even. And I had people private messaging me that you know they helped with one campaign, but they were seen at Parliament with another party, and now they're not allowed to help with this campaign. And it just blows my mind how we can't just even be friends with yeah. people across party lines of of how engulfed people become in in their in their parties.
0: We're talking with Kelly Elliott, deputy mayor in Middlesex Center, and we're talking about partisanship. And Kelly has outlined a, a, an experience that not only you have had, but other people have had. So when they go to the door, basically canvassing, door knocking, letting people know what they stand for, this is the issue that is is coming up?
1: Apparently. and And it's and it's funny because I I very um, deliberately, um, even though I have a nice Karen Vecchio sign on my front lawn, but I live on a back row, so not many people see it. But um, I don't always go out of my way to show support in public. And maybe that's just um, the fact that I'm a municipal elected official. We're not bound to parties. I support parties who have ideas and platforms that will better our community because that's my job. That's what I'm elected to do. And so I try to be supportive. But again. I try to be supportive, just good people. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and
0: I don't see what... That, the fact that you are sitting here and saying, I want to support good people, and somehow that is being turned into something negative, I don't even get that. Yeah, I want to support the right person for the job. No. No, you should not ever do that. That's not... Th- That shouldn't be the way that things work. I'm blown away that this is actually the reaction that you're getting in 2019. And at the same time, maybe I'm not so blown away because we've seen a lot of divisiveness creep up and a lot of, you know, protectionism of this is who I am and this is what I stand for creep in. This is, this is a fascinating thing to look at. Well, I hope that the backlash kind of fades a little bit because supporting good people should never be something in my mind that stops. Uh, that's the only way we're going to get ahead. Kelly, thank you so much for outlining this for us.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Mike.
0: That's a conversation from just a little earlier today with Kelly Elliott, the deputy mayor in Middlesex Center. And if you join halfway through that, Kelly tweeted about this last night. Here's what happened. She is someone who is of a conservative background. She is loyal to the conservatives. She made a $75 donation to the campaign of Kate Graham, who is running for the Liberals. And now that's become a a big story at doorways as people canvass. The idea that somebody who is a supporter of the Conservatives should not be supporting someone from the Liberals, as Kelly says... She wants to support good people. Why do we get so tied up in this? Because I don't have an answer for it. Because I've never felt this way before. I have never said, I am going to support this party thick and thin because it's different. I will say I will support the Cincinnati Bengals through thick and thin, but I, I really don't even mean it. And it doesn't affect my life. They frustrate me. They're poorly run. It'll never change. If I had to vote for them, I would not vote for the Cincinnati Bengals. i cheer for them. There's a difference. I would not support them with a vote. You guys are not the best-run football team anywhere. In fact, you're one of the worst, historically. It's been awful. But that's different. In politics, how is it that you can blindly say, no matter who leads this party, I'm in. I am in. Because as much as you can say, well, it's it's the way that the party operates. It's what they stand for. That changes. You know, we see things lean left, lean right, lean toward the middle. We see that again and again. If you look at what military personnel give they give everything they risk their lives there are very few jobs like that you can point to some and say they're very risky jobs and they are on a day-to-day basis but you enter the military you're willing to risk your life for your country And there's a whole lot to be said for that. All of these rights and freedoms that we've been talking about, this democracy that we live underneath, the ability to go and vote in a couple of weeks, or even as Richard says this weekend when the early polls open, all of that comes because of what has happened before, because of what has happened in massive military conflicts that we truly can't even appreciate anymore. So, when we get a story about looking after and paying the medical bills of military personnel, and the idea that there's some kind of battle going on, makes you wonder who is even instigating this? Who is involved in this? Who is not truly appreciating what is going on? Well, in order to truly appreciate what is going on, let's go to Ottawa right now, because Mercedes-Stevenson is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News. She's the host of the West Block, which you can hear on 980 CFPL. And she's nice enough to join us now to help us understand this story. Mercedes, do we know where this story stems from?
2: So what is happening is that uh, when you join the military, you don't have a provincial health card anymore because the military becomes responsible for your care. And they typically have, you see military doctors, but obviously there are times when that's not possible or you need something like a surgery or an MRI that the military isn't able to perform. In that case, military members use the Canadian health care system and the military reimburses the healthcare system. But they've been reimbursing them at out-of-province rates. The military thinks they're getting gouged and doesn't think they should be paying higher rates. The provinces say that that reflects the true cost of care and that because they are outside the province in terms of people not having a health card card, not being insured in the province, they should pay the same rate as anybody else who comes from outside the province. So the military pushed back said, we're cutting back on what we pay there. And then the concern is that some hospitals uh, may refuse services to military members. We know there is one hospital in Ontario uh, from multiple sources at the federal, provincial and inside the military level that confirmed they are not booking MRIs for military members anymore. That's not to suggest if someone shows up at the emergency ward, they're not going to be seen. But that some of these hospitals won't want to undertake military patients anymore, or they may have to go to another hospital to pursue those services. Or in some cases, uh, one hospital was threatening to hand them the bill up front. Uh, And that's sort of where the concern for this story came from, is that in this big fight between the provinces and the government, over who should pay what. It's the military members who are concerned about their care.
0: And that's just it. I mean, this, this is a bureaucratic situation here. Go into a room, please figure this out. When we're talking about the two different costs, whether, I guess, for example, in Ontario it would be OHIP or it would be the Ontario Medical Association, right?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, if, if I'm, I'm in Quebec right now on a campaign bus, so if I got sick here and had to be seen, I would have to pay an out-of-province rate to go to the hospital because I'm not a Quebec resident and I don't pay into the Quebec tax system. Then the Ontario government would reimburse that rate. What is different about this is that these are military members who actually live in the same province where they are being served, but they are not covered under the provincial health care plan. What we've not been able to get, the military, the government, the provincial governments, anybody to answer on this is the reason why. We know the reason why it's being set up front is that, and everyone agrees on this, they are the federal government's responsibility. But are they already paying into the health care system in some other way through their taxes? And if so, is it fair that they're being charged that much? Those are still issues that we're looking into. But in the meantime, this fight between the feds and the provinces is escalating. And the way that the Department of National Defense did this, uh, they didn't consult the provinces and they didn't warn them. They basically just dropped it one day. Now, provinces, important to say, have a role here, too. Uh, For example, in Alberta, they have said they will make sure that no military member goes without treatment. So that may mean that the province steps up and pays the bills. Ontario hasn't made that promise.
0: We are talking with Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News, host of the West Block, which you can hear on 980 CFPL. When we go looking to kind of the, the way that this is working out, how much of this may just have to do with hospital budgets that eventually could be adjusted? It sounds like they were expecting res- to receive a certain amount of money, and now it, it might be less money that the military is offering to pay. How much does the, the budget aspect of this come in?
2: Well, it's the hospitals are are... Showing the budgeting that we have obtained uh, through a provincial source. I could tell you that. Some hospitals, you're looking at uh, over $2 million a year. In Ontario, they're anticipating about a $10 million shortfall from anticipated revenue overall as a result. Alberta, the Alberta government tells us on the record that they're expecting uh, about a $2 million shortfall. So it varies from province to province how many people stationed with the military there, how many bases, all those kinds of things. Uh, But you are looking at a multi-million dollar shortfall in anticipated revenue.
0: Those numbers sound really big. Do they sound really big to you?
2: There's, there's certainly, um, substantial numbers. There are numbers that raise the question of, of how uh, hospitals will not be left on the hook or provinces won't be left on the hook for the shortfall. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came out today and said he will make sure that they, the hospitals are not negatively impacted and that members of the Canadian forces are not negatively impacted. But no one is answering how that's going to be the case. If that means that they're going to inject more funding, if that means in the short term they're going to make up for that shortfall until the hospitals and provinces maybe have maybe had some time to adjust to new rates if those are agreed upon.
0: As a final note, where do you expect this to go next? What, Where does the timeline take us?
2: So the timeline next is that they are in negotiations about this. They're talking about whether or not uh, the established rates by the military, who say we want to pay lower, should go, or whether it should be the established rates for out-of-province care, or maybe it's somewhere in the middle. So they are in active negotiations now trying to figure that out. We don't know how long that's potentially going to take. This has already been going on for months very quietly behind the scenes.
0: Mercedes, please keep up the great work. We'll listen for you on the West Block this weekend. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the West Block on cuts to medical funding for military personnel. Those numbers, the reason I asked Mercedes whether those numbers sounded big, they sound inflated to me. Well, this is what it could be. This I would like to see a a breakdown of that. This has been happening behind the scenes, as she said. Why has this been happening at all? Seriously. You know, and this is not a hospital issue. I'm not saying, oh, hospitals, what are you trying to do? No, this is a government issue. This is ridiculous. You've got military personnel who are being treated like out-of-province health clients. That's what we have. Why do you not just get the health benefits that everybody else does? Who started this? And maybe that's the problem. Well, that party started it a long time ago, so we're not dealing with that. But this is an argument being had by every province. Essentially, again, what's happening, just to break it down into its simplest form, let's say you get sick and you are an Ontario resident. You go, and the bill is through OHIP. So the bill is is X amount of dollars for whatever you do. If we're talking about something that is paid for out of province, if it's being paid for by Ontario, it goes through the Ontario Medical Association. And the cost for the same procedure or service or whatever it is, is more. Just because it's going through the Ontario Medical Association. It's kind of like if you go to a nice steakhouse and you have a steak you're going to have a certain cut of meat, and, you know, is is it any better? I, I don't know. And you go to a different steakhouse, and, and the cut of meat seems to be the same, but the price is different because one is called, you know, 10, and the other one is called Joe's Steakhouse and Poutinery. At 10, you're going to have this steak that is, you're made to feel is better, so you're going to pay more. It's not. It's the same. It's, it bo- both come from a cow. Both are being prepared. But in this case, we have the OHIP price being lower than the Ontario Medical Association price. Or cost, I guess we should call it. And because of that... We now have the Canadian military saying, yeah, we're, we're paying more for the same thing. So, no, we're, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to eat at 10 anymore. I'm going to go and eat at Joe's Steakhouse and Poutinery because they've got good steaks too. And uh, I'm not really about the, the paying more for the same thing. And that's what's happening. And all of a sudden there's a fight over this because it is costing hospitals more. Uh, how about federal government? You find it. You pay. The hospital shouldn't have to foot the bill for this. This never should have been happening in the first place. And these are our military personnel. Give me a break. Whoever is standing in the way of this and trying to get somebody else to put their name on the dotted line for the bill, just stop it. Just, Just stop it. Federal government, absorb this. Make it go away. This could become an election issue. I hope it does, if that's where it's coming from. Mercedes Stevenson could have more on this a little later on this weekend, but we'll continue to follow the story for you. Let's take a minute to talk dogs. I'm not getting a dog. But I'm very interested to see what the reaction is to something that has been kind of talked about for a little while, and now is actually looking like it could happen. And that is the idea that we welcome back pit bulls into our midst. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. I, uh, no, that's not a good idea. Remember, they're those dogs that can jump up and bite into a tire. They can. Their jaws have, and everybody always knows the fill-in-the-blank line for how many pounds per square inch of pressure. Okay, yeah, uh, I still don't really know where this ban of pit bulls came from other than people thought they were vicious and we had a number of of people pushing for this and, and it ended up happening. Now we've got Premier Doug Ford's government thinking they'll make changes perhaps to the Dog Owners Liability Act. Someone who's been following this story very closely is Jessica Scott-Reed, and you may have read Jessica's work in the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star, New York Daily News, and it's great to have her on the show. Jessica, thanks for being here.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Jessica, let's talk about what is kind of taking place here. Has it been a conversation, you think, that has been going on for a while behind the scenes among animal supporters that has now come more mainstream that's led to this or could it be something else
3: yeah i think this conversation's been going on for years i mean if we look at canada in general uh, what happened in Montreal just a couple of years ago, uh, where their uh, breed-specific legislation was overturned by a new Montreal mayor. Uh, so that really brought the conversation sort of back into the the mainstream media and mainstream pop culture conversation. And I think it's been ongoing ever since. It's, it's a very uh, intense debate uh, with a lot of emotion on both sides.
0: For a while, we were always seeing stories about, oh, the pit bulls, look at how muscular they are. Look at this. This pit bull can hang off a rubber tire in the backyard. And and we looked at them and said, yeah, these these dogs, they, they can be awfully dangerous. Is there any justification in everything that you've looked at for these dogs being a, a danger? Uh,
3: no, I think so. Uh focusing on a specific breed of dog uh, is misguided and actually a missed opportunity. Uh, pit bull type dogs are, of course, a power breed. They're a large breed, uh, but any dog can be aggressive and any dog can be dangerous. And I think focusing on dangerous dogs rather than a breed of dog uh, is really where we should be focusing. If we look at the Calgary model, uh, which is is world famous for uh, their handling of dangerous dogs, uh, we see it's very successful in protecting communities and keeping owners and the community uh, responsible for the treatment of these animals and the subsequent behavior of these animals rather than a breed being held responsible.
0: So help us out. How does the Calgary law work?
3: So it really focuses much more on holding owners accountable for uh, their dog's uh, behavior. Uh, there are much higher uh, punishments for owners of dangerous dogs. And they also work a lot in educating the community. I read one stat today that showed um, they they go into schools and teach young children about how to interact respectfully and safely with dogs. Uh, and that one hour of dog safety training with uh, students in grade 2 and grade 3 can prevent childhood dog bites by up to 80%. So it really holds the community and owners accountable rather than the animals.
0: And that's maybe where it should have been all along. I mean, we've got to understand... How dogs feel and and how animals in particular feel. We always like to humanize everything. And, well, a dog acts just like a human. So if I put my face right near the dog's face, humans like that. Dogs must like that, too. That's, that's got to be something that, as you say, needs more education to it. So maybe that is the way to go. As far as as looking out for the handling by owners, is that something you'd be in favor of?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think you're right that um, in terms of uh, dog ownership culture, Canada, North America, we really lag behind when you look at other places, say uh, in Europe, where things like training is mandatory by law and socialization is uh, mandatory by law that you have to provide this. Whereas in Canada, we only have to provide dogs. Food, water, shelter, and veterinary care. That's it by law. We don't need to provide this socialization and this training, which makes them such safer members of society.
0: We're talking right now about the idea that we could see the pit bull ban in Ontario done away with with Jessica Scott Reed you can read Jessica's work in the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star and a number of other publications Jessica when it comes to the breed itself have have we really seen the disappearance of pit bulls in Ontario largely do we still have some crossbreeds in there somewhere
3: yeah, it's very difficult, of course, to distinguish what a pit bull-type dog actually is. Uh, I've seen a lot of things going around on the internet uh, when I was living in Montreal, and this debate was happening there, where it asked people to identify uh, a picture of a pit bull within a group of, say, six photos, and most people failed. This is not really a specific type of dog these days. It's kind of a mix of dogs. Uh, and so, again, to be putting this dangerous dog um, title on this breed is silly
0: yeah and you make a a great point that you know all dogs have the ability to perhaps bite all dogs have the ability to you know to do something you would say "Uh uh-oh we can't have that and and yet we seem to be zeroing in on one type of breed have you seen this anywhere else where another type of breed has been incorporated into this
3: Uh, i think we've seen you know throughout time different breeds of dogs vilified. We've seen it with Dobermans in the past, with Rottweilers, when in fact, like you said, it it happens with all kinds of breeds. And I think when we specifically look at one breed now, culturally, it's the pit bull, um, which unfortunately is a type of dog that does end up in the wrong hands of the wrong people. uh, If we look at dog fighting, Um, so there is something specific about this breed. But again, it's not the dog's fault. Uh, this is this is a, a problem within our community, within our culture, and it really should be the people who are held accountable um, and not the animal.
0: Well said. We really want to thank you for your time, Jessica. Thanks for following this story.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: That's Jessica Scott-Reed, freelance writer, looking at pit bulls, and so many great points there. I mean, if you're going to look at a pit bull, is it a strong animal? Yeah. Is it capable of doing damage if it were to bite? Or attack? Absolutely. But Jessica cites what's happening out west in Calgary. And the idea that, no, the impetus is on the owner. And if you have an owner that wants to feel tough, if you have an owner that has a dog because they're inadequate in other ways and they need to feel that, yeah, I'm the toughest guy on the block because I got this dog and it's really mean. And if you do something to me, I'll sick it on you. If you have somebody who's acting like that, then that's the problem. It's not the dog. The dog doesn't say, hey, pick me out of this litter, and I'll turn you into the toughest on the block. That's what we'll be. We'll be a dynamic duo. We'll fight crime. Dogs don't think like that. Dogs would never say that. Dogs don't want to fight crime. Not even close. They're not crime fighters at all. But in this case, you've got people who have now put it onto the breed, and I think that's unfair. You know, I look at, you know, unfortunately, people do get bitten by dogs, but the idea that you have to come up with how a dog will react to what you do is not stressed enough. You know what we spend too much time doing? We spend too much time personifying our pets, way too much time, instead of understanding how that pet might be thinking or feeling. Oh, it's my baby. Oh, it's my kid. Oh, and that's fine. You want to have a relationship like that? There's nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't think like a baby. It doesn't think like a kid. It doesn't do that at all. Dogs don't want to be hugged. I always cringe when I see stories of someone is bitten by a dog. All they did was come and give it a hug. You know what a, a hug means to a dog? You're trapped. You're in danger. You can't get away. I've got you. So when a dog reacts like they want to get away or that they don't want to be gotten and we all of a sudden vilify the dog, that's wrong. That's someone doing something to the dog that never should have been done in the first place. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.